Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Now, as we look at Genesis 19 this morning, um, this is one of the passages that people, as people who live in a city, um, we really struggle with. And if you are, were brought here by a friend this morning, this is not our typical vibe, I'll be honest with you. Um, we go through books of the Bible. We go straight through and we tackle what is right in front of us. We don't run from it. Um, but this is, a, this is a sensitive subject. And uh, this is a subject that as people in a city, a fairly progressive city, um, this is a deeply offensive subject for many. The idea that God would judge an entire city and then raise it to the ground This seems completely unacceptable in the world that we live in today. And oftentimes this passage has been used even as a clobber passage for the gay community. And I want to be very clear about something. We believe the scriptures. We believe in a biblical sexual ethic, but you can never use the scripture to clobber an entire group of people. I want to be very clear. We don't clobber anybody. We love and serve our neighbors. And so when we come across a passage like this, there are a few ways that we can process it. We can ignore it or we can hit it face on. Uh, and and as, there, as the very real oppression of gay people was coming to the forefront in the 1960s, and it had been happening for, for a long time, even with the advent of the word homosexual, even though the, uh, the, the idea had been in, around history forever, um, there had been a real, real oppression toward the gay community. And churches went one of two ways. Many churches went one of two ways. Some saw the very real human crisis issue that was happening with the gay community and rushed right in but along the way lost the biblical sexual ethic. They believed that in order to love their gay neighbor, they had to jettison the Bible. Others focused solely on truth. They clarified, they defined, they built walls, and then often used this passage and many others like a hammer to hammer their gay neighbor and miss the very real need for ethical treatment of their gay neighbor who often were denied housing and employment and many other human rights. And so it feels like when you come across a passage like this, that you either have to jettison the Bible or love people. You have to jettison the Bible or love other people. And I want to tell you that that is a false dichotomy. You don't have to do that. We can both believe the Bible and love our neighbor. And at City on the Hill, we, we take the Bible seriously. We take the, the words of Jesus seriously. We take the ethic that God calls us to sexually seriously, but we also take the part where Jesus calls us to love our neighbor seriously. And so we take this seriously, and we have to talk about this subject because silence or ignoring or avoiding, avoiding hard topics is not loving. Silence excludes people who need to know where salvation can be found, and all of us need this salvation. And this morning, I want us to know that there is good news in Jesus, whether you are straight or gay or bi or any other orientation, because it's not your orientation that saves you. It's Jesus who saves you. And by faith in Jesus, anyone can be forgiven your sins and counted as righteous before God. And we also believe that as Jesus changes us, there is a particular way that God calls us to obedience sexually that means that every single one of us has to deny some sort of desire or the other. And so I want to acknowledge a few things this morning. Number one, we are limited this morning. I do not have the time necessary to unpack every little piece of this. I'm going to miss some things this morning. 
There are things I'm not gonna be able to hit at the depth I would like to hit that. And so I'm gonna be available after the service. Uh, if you have any questions, if it's a burning question, you need to talk about it today, I will sit and talk with you about it. I'm available for coffee anytime. I'll be glad to sit and talk with you about this. And then later in the spring, we are going to do another Q&A on Genesis. Please feel free to bring a question in any of those arenas and we'll try to uh, do it this way. Um, also, um, just we're gonna be limited in this time. And so I also wanna approach this with humility. Um, because there has been real harm done to the LGBTQ plus community, often in the name of God. And I really do believe if you understand the Bible correctly, you cannot hate your gay neighbor. I also want to acknowledge that our confidence is in God's word. Our confidence is not in the cultural moment. There has never been a point in human history where the Bible's sexual ethic lines up perfectly with culture. Never. Not one period has it lined up. Not in the time of the Bible, not in the 1950s, not in the 1980s, not today. It is never lined up. And so God's call for us is bound up in his words, not in what is culturally acceptable. And so I want us to look this morning at the context of Genesis 19. And what we need to look at is what is the sin that made God judge Sodom? Pastor Aaron from City in a Hill Brighton last week unpacked the idea that God was coming to judge Sodom for their wickedness. And Abraham interceded for the city, asking that God would show them mercy. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what exactly is the sin that they committed? Was it solely sex or sexuality? But that's not the whole story. It's not just sexual immorality. It's an entire cultural ethos that was forming them. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. So on one hand, Sodom was condemned for being prideful, for living in excess, for lacking justice for the poor and for the needy. And so that is a, that's, those are some pretty strong indictments against the city of Sodom, against the city of Gomorrah. And some on the affirming side of the argument or liberal scholars have said, well, that's the only thing that they were judged for. However, if you look at Jude chapter uh, 1, there's only one chapter, verse 7, it says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, we need to zoom in on one phrase there to help us understand what's going on, and it is the phrase sexual immorality. The Greek word for that is porneia. Now, that may sound pretty familiar, the word porn or pornography. That word porneia is a catch-all term. It's a blanket term for any sexual action, very clear on that, action that is contrary to God's design for sex between man and a woman in the context of marriage. So we see here the, the, the homosexual acts that were happening in Genesis 19 falling under that, but there's a whole lot of other actions that fall under that too. There's a whole lot of other actions that fall under that that is anything outside of this design. Now, notice I said action. I didn't say orientation. I didn't say temptation. It means that a person's desires may never change. A person's desires or orientation may never change, but that they choose to obey Jesus because they see that his promises are good. That he's more good and glorious than sex or sexual expression, and that sex has a context and that context points to this greater reality. 
And the way that the, the Jewish people understood it and the way this continued into Christianity, we often call this the Judeo-Christian sexual ethic, is that this vision of oneness between man and woman in marriage actually was good and pointed to a deeper reality. And as Sam Alberry said, this actually gives us the shape of the entire Bible. The entire Bible is built out under this framework. And so you look at Genesis chapter 1, and I imagine Genesis chapter 1 is like the big picture blockbuster movie version of creation. There's a lot of CGI, there's amazing things happening. You see the earth coming and forming, you see the sun being created, you see the waters and the earth being separated, and then you get to Genesis 2 and you wonder, wait a minute, why is there a second creation story? And the reason is, is it zooms in on this little wedding in a garden. One of my favorite weddings I ever performed was in a little botanical garden with four people. I imagine this beautiful little intimate setting of a man and a woman. And what we notice in that is it becomes a pattern for not just human relationship, but for the very way that God relates to his people. The entire shape of the rest of the Old Testament is God as a husband pursuing his wife, pursuing his bride, the church. And you see this language used over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And this language even gets brought into the New Testament with Jesus as Jesus loves his church. And Jesus loves his church through difference. It's resembled by man and by woman. It's represented by Jesus who is faithful and the church who is not. And it points us to the cross and eventually leads us to Revelation. And there's this climax of a wedding feast between Christ and the church. And it shows us that God loves every single person endlessly and is calling the broken to himself. That every single person can be forgiven. That every single person has access through Jesus. And so let's look at the story of Sodom. Let's look at Lot, who is in Sodom, and how God brings both justice and mercy together in this moment, and really what's at play here in this passage. And the first thing we see at play here in the passage is the pull of culture. We see the pull of culture in verse 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels come to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, um, the two angels are sitting there, and, and this is a prominent position, sitting in the gate. Someone who was sitting in the gate would have been a person of power, a person who had authority. This would have been very similar to, say, like the city council. In fact, the Proverbs 31 woman who's described is actually described as having favor in the city gates. And so this is a place of power. And so Lot has found himself in a position of authority, of influence in the middle of the city of Sodom. And I'm going to say this. I am pro-city. I love the city. I love living in the city. I love Boston. I love our city. This is one of the best places on earth to live. Absolutely. I see the the fist bump in the back. Yeah. We have one of the best places in the world to live. And here's the reason. We have great culture. We have great food. We have great history. We have the best sports teams in the world. Don't anybody argue that. Uh, We have the most diverse neighborhoods you can possibly imagine. It's like these little city states all over our, our, our city. We have an incredible city that's innovative, and you're close to anything. You can be to the mountains in a couple of minutes. You can be to the, you know, in, in to, the, to the beach. You can go to New York City in four hours. I don't know why you want to go there, but you can go anywhere you want to go in a few hours. And so we should love Boston. We should, we should love our city. I think you should be involved at every level you possibly could. Run for local office. Um, be involved in the local schools. Get involved in your neighborhood. Do these things because we as people with good news bring good news to our city to make it a better place. We should do that. So enjoy Boston, love Boston, serve Boston, bless Boston. And Lot should have done that with Sodom. We also need to be very clear that every culture and every city has its idols that are trying to shape you. Every city 
every culture. And these idols will pull at your heart. They will pull at the loves of your heart. And it's not just here. It's not just in a city like Boston. I was just down in Alabama last week. The the idols of the South are very different than the idols of the North. The idols of the South butt up right next to the church, and the church becomes a place of ease and comfort and affluence instead of being a people on mission to our city. It's easy to get swept up in the cultural uh, flow or, of our, or current of our city, and it begins to shape you. And you see this in Lot. One of, what, were one of, what was one of the indictments against Sodom is that they were inhospitable to the poor, that they were inhospitable to those who were in need. And so Lot follows that same thing in the way that he addresses these men. It's at the end of verse 1, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. Now, that seems like a pretty generous thing. But if you compare that to what Abraham did in chapter 18, where he said, Lord, my lords, if I have favor in your sight. Here we see Lot not really asking whether he'd found favor, but being insistent because it made him look good. It was all about appearances. He's insistent. They say, no, we will spend the night in the town square, which was generally the practice, a very safe place. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, we see that he's very insistent. We see that he said, you guys can rise up early tomorrow. You don't even get to sleep in. I kind of want you out of my house. I've got plans for tomorrow. And even the way that he feeds them is kind of ironic because it says the word feast. This is very tongue-in-cheek. It really wasn't a feast. He just offered them some, them some bread. If you, we had our, our breakfast meal yesterday as a church. And if you were here last year for that meal, uh, our catering went wrong. And we had like these little like gas station sandwiches that were like this big. And we were all hungry. That's a little bit about what's going on here with Lot, is Lot has offered this feast that's not really a feast. He says, I'm going I'm to do so much for you. And then you see Abraham's humility in chapter 18, where he says, I'm going to give you a morsel that tends, ends up to be very extravagant. Lot was being shaped by the culture in Sodom, and we see that he is not much different than his neighbors. And if we're not careful, we can be shaped by our city, no matter where you live, and we will not be a whole lot different than our unbelieving neighbors. We are to be a counterculture to our culture within our city, to look and live differently as God's people. And so how do we avoid this? How do we avoid being pulled by the idols of our culture? It's not by removing ourselves from it. It's not by saying, well, I just need to get away from these idols and get away from these temptations and get away from these things because that's what's causing me to act this way. Because if you don't deal with the real problem, you just trade in one set of idols for a new set of idols in a new place. You have to address the hearts. You have to address what you love. And so if we're being formed by the idols of our city, we have to be counterformed by God's word. We have to root ourselves in God's word and the promises of God And we have to do this because we have to to know what God says. We have to know what God says, not just about sex or sexuality, but about everything. And if we don't, if we we don't root ourselves in God's word, we'll be like what Paul said, that we'll be blown about by every wind of doctrine. We won't be anchored to the truth of God. And what will happen is you'll you'll be in TikTok at about 11 o'clock at night, and the guy's going to have a cool haircut, there's going to be cool music, and someone's going to be spouting some heresy that was refuted 2,000 years ago as if it was new. We have to really think through what is shaping us in our culture. And we have to be shaped by God and his word. 
And as we root ourselves in God's word, here's what happens. We actually learn how to enjoy and love our city better. Because we don't see our city with just rose-colored glasses and say, Boston's the best place on earth and it doesn't have any problems. Anybody, anybody been down to Mass and Cass lately? Our, our city doesn't, isn't faultless. But it also helps you see that your city only isn't just some big bad place that it, there's no good in it. What we find when we're shaped by God's word is that we know how to see the idols of our culture and then bring a better story. To bring a better story into your job that you don't have to enter the rat race and try to make more money and try to move up by any means necessary. That you can live in a neighborhood not just simply because it has good schools or not just because the housing prices are low or you can live in a neighborhood because you want to bring the gospel to that neighborhood. You can see how you're teaching a better story in your relationships that people aren't just about satisfying your relational needs, but how do you love and serve your neighbor well? So we're being pulled by culture. Lot is being pulled by culture. Well, you also see in Sodom the pervasiveness of sin. So we see the pull of culture and the pervasiveness of sin. Look at verse 4. The scene turns sour very quickly. I said, but before they lay down, before they could even go to sleep, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Now, oftentimes the, the town square was a safe place. Lot, knowing the city knows it was not in Sodom, he invites them in. And so the men of the city come around. And this shows us how pervasive this is because it's not just young people being foolish. It's just not old jaded people. It's everybody. And it makes this clear because it says down to the very last man. This was just how people lived in Sodom. It was pervasive. But we also see that their intent was brutal. They surround the house, which, you know, when somebody surrounds you, you know, that's, that's a bad sign. They don't have good intent. And we see in verse 5 where it says, they, and they call to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, know them doesn't mean that they wanted to, like, have a conversation with them. That's a sexual term. They wanted to know them. And if you look at verse 9, they didn't want to just know them. This was a, intended to be a brutal sexual assault. This, this, I mean, this, this is the scripture, this is what we're seeing, this is the story that's being told. And we need to understand that this was very common to the world then. This was just the norm for sexuality in that world. Men in that culture and across all the way into the Greco-Roman culture were expected to sleep with other women. Men were often expected to sleep with other men. Sex was about power, not about love. It was used to exploit and dominate and get what you want. And as, as Preston Sprinkle says, that what we call pornography, the Greco-Roman world called life. This was the way people lived. It was a dangerous place. And so the Judeo-Christian sexual ethic stands against this to show that God designed sex not to exert power, but to express love. Not for selfishness, but selflessness. Not, not in order to get whatever you want, but to sacrifice for the sake of another. Not for, for having sex with whoever you wanted to, but for oneness with one person unified forever. Not to use, but to love. And the reality is, is that you cannot love and use your neighbor at the same time. It's a lot being brought up in this to some extent recognizes the wickedness. He says in verse 6, Lot went out to the Men at the entrance shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. He sees that what's about to occur is wicked, it's wrong, it's evil, it's oppressive. 
But I want you to notice that the next verse, Lot is not a whole lot better. What is Lot's solution? We see how the pervasiveness of sin has gotten into Lot. His, his, his solution is a terrible solution among terrible solutions. He says, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Now, a couple things. One, I'm sure Lot's daughters were like, excuse me, like this is, no, like I, I did not agree to this. But his solution, and we need to be clear about this, is despicable. This is a despicable solution. The Bible is often prescriptive in somewhere like Genesis. It's not saying that this is just the way the world is or the way things should be. It's not prescriptive. It's describing what happened. But his solution was do whatever you want to to my daughters so that I appear hospitable before these men. How messed up and twisted is that? And these men look at him and they say, basically, who are you to judge us? You're an outsider. They said, stand back in verse 9. This fellow came to sojourn and he became the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with him. And then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. They, saw, they, did, they weren't real happy with his solution. So we see how the pervasiveness of sin got into Lot and his solution. We also see how it happens in Lot's son-in-laws. Look at verse 12. After God has rescued um, Lot and his family by the angels pulling him back into the house and blinding the men, it says, then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were you, who were, who were to marry his daughters? Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. His life was so out of kilter with God's will that his sons-in-law, who were likely in the crowd, by the way, looked at him and thought he must be joking. That's how deeply Sodom had been shaping him, how deeply sin was pervasive in him. We see this in the way that Lot lingers. Look at verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. And it says in verse 16, But he lingered. He lingered. He waited. He stayed. This is an urgent situation. They have just, in verses 10 and 11, saved him by the skin of his neck, jerked him back into the house, and now they're saying this is urgent. They use the term flee five times. And, and Lot's just lingering there. He's waiting. And it says, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. God was merciful to drag him out when he was lingering. And you and I are so often quick to fail to see the seriousness of sin. Sin that leads to death, and we just kind of tend to linger in it, and we wonder, well, what's really the big deal? Why is this so bad? Why would God not want me to do this? And we tend to linger longer in sin because we don't see how it actually hurts us, how it affects us, but yet God is gracious to lead you and I from sin to life. And I think what's really amazing is that if you look at Mark chapter 8, the exact same wording was used for Jesus in the way he took the blind man by the hand and led him to life. God is leading us to life even though we linger in our sin. 
We see the sin has gotten into Lot because of the way that he negotiates. So it says, and as they brought them out, in verse 17, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. In verse 18, Lot said to them, oh no, my lords. He just refuses. He says, I, I'm not going to do that. Impending doom is coming. Judgment is about to come upon the city. And Lot's like, no, I don't, I don't want to go where you want me to go. And for the very first time, he actually acknowledges in verse 19 that God has shown him favor. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Thank you for saving me up to this point, but I really can't make it where you want me to go. I, I can't make it there. And in verse 20, he says, Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and is a, it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Verse 22, Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little. What Lot wanted was he wanted to be saved by God, but he still just wanted a little bit of the old life. God, I want you to save me. I want you to rescue me, but I can't go as far as you actually want me to. Do you ever think like that? You're thankful that Jesus saved you. You're thankful for, for the cross, but you really just don't want to change too much. I'm thankful that you've forgiven my sins, but the demands you're seemingly putting on my life just seem a little too steep. That what you're asking me to lay down seems a little too stream, that the ways that you're calling me to live just seem a little too costly. And the question is, is why don't we give ourselves fully to Jesus? It's the same reason that Lot didn't want to go all the way to the hills, and it's because he was afraid. We're afraid that God's not actually going to provide for us when we step out of our life of sin. We're afraid that we're, God's not going to provide for us or be enough for us or satisfy us or be good enough when we step away from the things that have given us comfort and pleasure and joy. But what we find, much like Lot, is the places we tend to cling to don't actually give us the hope and joy we hope for. Look at verse 30. It says, Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. He ended up going to the place God wanted him to go anyway after taking this little detour by trying to hold on to the things that he loved more. We also see how sin had been pervasive in Lot by the way that it affected his, his wife. Verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him looked back, even though the angels told her not to, and she became a pillar of salt. She loved the city so much. And then also one of the just craziest passages in Scripture uh, is Lot's daughters in verse 31 through 38. All hope for a child is gone. Their, 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 son, their future husbands have been killed. They're living in a cave with their father, father. They're in the middle of nowhere. And they say, okay, our only solution, our dad's getting old, is that we're going to have to have sex with him so that we can have a child. And we see this plan that they concoct in verse 31, where it says, and the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. 
He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And we, so, so we see this pattern with the first daughter and then a couple of verses later, the second daughter, and they both become pregnant by their father. We see the pervasiveness of sin. And so how pervasive is sin? What is this text trying to get us to say? Is that it affects everyone, everywhere, and it is deeply ingrained in the heart of every person. What we're saying here is not that Sodom is just this really bad place and you just need to move to another place with less problems because Lot can't outrun his sin. He can't outrun the pervasiveness of sin. You know, early on during COVID, everybody was washing their vegetables. You guys remember that? Remember doing that? You get your vegetables delivered. I got to wash these because if I eat it, I eat this melon or whatever, I'm going to get COVID. That's kind of the way that people in Jesus's time thought about sin. If something had been touched in an unclean way, and you ingested it, you became a sinful person. And so we see this in Mark 7, that Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands, which is gross, but not a sin. Um, And so they didn't wash their hands, and they ate food. And the Pharisees said, the teacher said to, to Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands? They're defiling themselves. And Jesus says something absolutely incredible. He says, no, it's actually your heart. Your heart's messed up. Because from within you, pops up or, or bubbles up all sorts of sinfulness. It's not what goes in, but it's what's in your heart that's the well for every act of pride, selfishness, greed, sexual immorality, or oppression to rise up. And so what does this mean for how Sodom lives and how you and I live? Is that your desires get twisted up. We have these desires in our hearts that get twisted by sin And so behind every longing, even every sexual longing for for expression, is a desire to be loved and known. And those are not bad desires. But what sin does is it ends up twisting these. And we see this in this text under the banner of sexual sexual immorality. And we see it through same-sex sexual immorality, opposite uh, um, sexual immorality. We see this through pornography. We see it through all sorts of things. Again, we're talking action, not orientation, that our desires can be used to exploit or abuse other people like in verses four and five, that our desires can be used to consume other people for our own gain, like in verse eight, or they can be used as a means to an end to gratify what we think we want most, no matter the cost, like in verses 31 through 38. In fact, if you look a little bit further, you see how everything outside of God's design for sex and marriage in the Bible always leads to pain through who their children were. We see in in, um, verse 38, uh, where it says that the young, it says in verse 37, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. The Moabites and the Ammonites were the biggest thorns in the flesh of the people of Israel. It always leads to pain and suffering. And this is why the Christian vision of marriage and sexuality and singleness matters so much because Rebecca McLaughlin says that marriage gives the scale model for Christ in the church. And as it pictures this, it pictures Jesus laying his life down like one should for a partner, seeking the other's good, seeking their pleasure first, and it is unlike anything that the world had ever seen. And so sex is designed for that construct because it it was meant to express love in a way that is permanent, 100% committed, and pointing to Jesus' love for the church. And this ethic that the Bible lays out, as Jesus lays this out in Matthew 19, the Pharisees say to Jesus, look, nobody should even get married. This, this, This idea of marriage is so high, it would be better if we were just single. 
And you have to understand this to, and why this is good news for every person. Because the sexual ethic that the Bible lays out constrains and challenges everyone. Not just one particular group of people. Sam Alberry, who I mentioned earlier, is a same-sex attracted celibate priest. And he says that all of us are skewed. He said that no one is straight. All of our desires are skewed. It costs all of us because all of us have to say no to certain sexual behavior as we follow Jesus. And what that means is because all of us, the call is on par for all of us, that the gospel is good news for you, whether you're same-sex attracted or straight or struggling with gender fluidity. And maybe even some of you here today, the call is on par for everyone, that the call is to Jesus not to change your orientation, but to follow and obey him in his word. And so the call we see from this is either biblical marriage between a man and a woman or celibacy while single. Now, I want to say this about the church. The church has to be a place where people who are not married feel loved, known, and cared for. It has to be that. And the question for us, and this goes across the board, is do people feel more or less loved at City on a Hill? Do they feel more or less loved at our church than they do in the world? And if they feel less loved in our church than they do in the world, that's a problem. And Mary Falls, I'm going to slap you on the hand for a second. And so I'm not calling out anybody in particular. But if the only time you call a single person in our church is for them to babysit, that's a problem. Invite people for dinner. Invite them into your home. Make sure that people are a part of your family. And I'm going to say this. We have a long way to go as a church. We have a long way to go. I'm sorry for the ways that we fail at this. That City on a Hill can be a place where people are part of a vital family, regardless of where they come from, looking with hope to Jesus together. And if we're asking people to constrain themselves to obey Jesus' ethic, we have to be a place of warmth and grace and family like no other. So what can, what can we take away from this passage? Just two takeaways as we close up. Number one, there is a call to personal reflection. As you look at this text, it probably steps on your toes a little bit. This is not my opinion. It's, it's God's word. Um, but, but how are you being shaped by culture? What is shaping you? And I want you to be honest with yourself. Are, you, are your politics, your views on justice, your views on sexuality, parenting, dating, are they more shaped by culture or are they more shaped by God's unchanging word? There's a call to personal reflection. What are some blind spots that you might have? This is a great reason to be involved in a community group. group. Community groups are groups of 8 to 12 adults who get together and study God's word and encourage each other and push each other towards Jesus. This is a place you could ask other people to say, hey, maybe what's something you see in my life that doesn't actually line up with God's word? It's a safe place to do that. It's not about cleaning up or getting away from bad situations because Lot fled Sodom, but Sodom followed Lot. It's your heart. So, it's a call, this is called a personal reflection. And this is why the second takeaway is vital. This is why it's vital. The cross is your perfect redemption. The cross is your perfect redemption. One of the wildest verses in the Bible is in 2 Peter. I remember when the first time I read this, I did a double take. It says in 2 Peter verse, chapter 2, verse 7, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, hold up righteous Lot? We think of righteousness, we don't think of Lot. If you've been tracking with us in Genesis, this guy is a moron. He makes all sorts of mistakes. He fumbles and, and falls and he seems to fall into a mistake and gets into it again. And 
you got to be kidding me. It's like Peter never read Genesis. It's like Peter's like, okay, we know you were like a Bible college dropout, Peter, and you probably didn't read this. I'm going to pull you aside. Have you seen his Twitter feed? Have you seen who he follows? You see how political he gets? You see the disgusting things that he likes? Do you know what he did? This guy was a total screw-up, and you have to get that to understand Christianity. You have to get that to understand Christianity because that is the point. Sam Alberry again says that Christianity is not about God rewarding good people. It's about God forgiving bad people. That is the gospel. The gospel is not that you are a good person who needs a little bit of help, but that every single one of us is a sinner in need of grace and that Jesus went to a cross to pay for our sins so that you and I could be counted righteous. Lot was considered righteous for Abraham's sake, and we are considered righteous because of Jesus' sake. You're a mess, and that's the point. You may think that you've gone too far to be forgiven. You may think that you've done too much. You may think that there's something too wrong with you or that your insides just don't work right. You you may be thinking all of these things, but that means that the gospel is for you. That Jesus died to pay your penalty so that you could be counted right before God and so that no matter what's going on inside, no matter what you struggle with, Jesus wants you to surrender to him. So as we close, as we respond, a couple things. Again, I know we had limited time and I couldn't say everything. And this may have been a really tough topic for you. This may have hit home personally. This may have hit home in your family. This may have hit home with your friends. I'm going to be here for a while after the service. I would love to talk with you. Again, I'll exchange number. If I don't have your number, we'll grab coffee this week. I'd love to just talk with this, through this with you. Maybe this morning you're wrestling with a particular sin and you're like, how do I follow Jesus in this? We can talk with you through that. And maybe this morning you just realize that I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I, I need what Jesus offers. I, I need to, to give my life to Christ because Jesus gave his life for me. If that's you this morning, I'm gonna be standing in the back as we take communion. And I'd love to talk with you about how to enter into that life-giving relationship with Jesus. Let's pray.